Father, as we open your word, Lord, help us to see your marvelous grace. Lord, be with us now. Lord, pray that your spirit would uh, attend to the reading of your word. Lord, I pray that you would be here actively uh, applying it to our lives, showing us, Lord, where we need to trust your promises, trust your provisions, marvel at your grace. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that work now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The story before us today is Israel's second chance to enter into the land that God has repeatedly promised to give them. Though God has been promising this, them this land, the Israelite people have found this promise just too good to be true. So, In Numbers 13 and 14, when Moses sent out the 12 spies to scout out the land, 10 of the 12 come back and they report, it's it's wonderful land, but we'll never be able to take it. The cities are too strong. The people are too big. And of course, two spies, Caleb and Joshua, trust in the Lord and argue that God's people should trust him to provide for what he has promised. But those two lose out and the people panic, and as a result, God punishes the people, saying none from that generation will enter into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. As we turn to the book of Joshua this morning, Moses has died, all of that generation that did not trust in God has died, and God's people have received the discipline of 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua 1 opens with the Lord telling Joshua that it's time to go into the land. He says it, repeats it over and over. No less than six times in Joshua 1 did we see God's promise to give the land to the people. And so the tension is pretty thick as we get to Joshua 2. As it opens with the sending of the spies into the land, we wonder, what will they do? Will they cower in fear? like the Israelites had done previously? Or will they believe that God is able to provide all that he promises? This morning we're going to read through the text bit by bit. We're going to see God at work in some surprising ways as he's faithful to provide all that he has promised. Follow along as we go scene by scene, making observations along the way, and then we'll make We'll step it back at the end and consider three takeaways for us. Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. 
So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Joshua sends the spies out secretly, and so tactically they go to lodge at a place where they hope to just remain undetected, where their presence is unlikely to create a stir because they can just blend in. Now, while their choice of lodging certainly does create some tension in the story, the text is written to indicate that they really didn't go there and sinfully partake. Verse 1 says that they lodged, and it's the same word used down in verse 8 for lay down. Likewise, we see in chapter 7 how seriously God is dealing with sin as Achan is dealt with in chapter 7. And so if the spies here had sinfully partaken, we know that he would have been dealt, they would have been dealt with equally. They're sent out secretly, but they're really not very good at it. As the king of Jericho becomes aware not only of their presence, he becomes aware of their mission, and he becomes aware of their location. So he sends for them to be brought out from Rahab's house. And as we read, there's yet more tension there. If you're reading this for the first time, I know this is a familiar story, but if we're reading this for the first time, there's tension there. Are they going to be found out? And it says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. That's an interesting plot twist. Again, we're familiar with the story and look past it, but it's a bit striking if we're reading it as for the first time. Why does Rahab ally with the spies? This is surprising ally. Then we see the spies' tactical decision pay off because the men come to interrogate Rahab, and Rahab says, yeah, they were here. I don't know where they came from, and they just left, so you should be able to catch them. And this is entirely believable to the men that she wouldn't have any further information, and so they carry on. Now, as a quick aside, because I really don't think this is the main point of the story, but it's a loose end that I think we should tie up, Rahab has clearly just lied. And the Bible's not commending her lie. She's commended later for her faith and for her care of the spies, but she's never commended for her lie. Some would examine this as an ethical dilemma, and you would say, like, well, all's fair in war, or like the ends justify the means, and something like that. But I think Paul rules out the ends justify the means in Romans 3 when he takes down the idea of doing evil that good may come of it. So, in short, Rahab shouldn't have lied. But working with what she had, she did lie. And the men buy it, and they carry on their way, which appears good, except verse 7 brings in another tension. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Just when we think we're in the clear, we have another problem. They're now trapped in. And this brings us to our next scene, where we see the motive of this surprising ally. Read with me at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So with the men on their way in pursuit, Rahab explains her motive for helping the scouts. And her words are really quite surprising on one hand. She says, look, I know that the Lord has already given you the land. We're done for. In fact, all of us cower in fear of your people because we know that the Lord, what the Lord did in parting the Red Sea and defeating the Amorites. Can you just imagine for a moment all the trouble that could have been prevented if Israel had just believed in the Lord's power like this Canaanite woman does? This is, in a way, quite surprising, and yet in another way, it's not because it's exactly what God had repeatedly promised to do. In Exodus 9.16, God tells Pharaoh that he's going to show off his power by so dominating him that God's victory becomes famous. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And if we reach back to Deuteronomy 2, 25, the Lord told Moses specifically that he was going to use the victory over Sihon to strike fear of Israel in other peoples. He says, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish of you. So here and in other places, God had promised that he himself was doing the work of giving Israel the land. And he was doing it in a way that he would get the glory for it because the fame of his name was spreading and striking fear in the heart of the foreign unbelieving nations. But look at what Rahab says in verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. One scholar summarizes it this way. Rahab now makes a profession of faith of which any Israelite would be proud. A Canaanite prostitute expresses her understanding of Yahweh in a way that shows a profound understanding of his character. This is a surprising faith confession. Okay, it's like, imagine today somehow like being trapped in some hostile context and you find there, out of nowhere, you find an ally quoting John 3.16. Okay, it's that kind of surprising faith confession. It's a, this is something like that. It's a clear profession of faith in the Lord. And so to Rahab, think about this, to Rahab, if all these things that she's saying are true, that there is one true God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, and if he's given the land to his people, 
then to Rahab she owes her allegiance to the one true God and not even to her own people. It only makes sense if what she's saying is true. And this is exactly what she's commended for in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find her in the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Also striking is in James chapter 2, when James is trying to illustrate that faith leads to works, Rahab is commended for the works that sprung from her faith, and she's listed right next to Abraham as an example. This is a surprising faith, but it is a deep faith, and this is her faith confession. Read with me now at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guilty with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So in return for the kindness she has shown to them, Rahab asks that her family be spared, and they enter into an oath with the, with the spies. And this is the surprising oath, and it's itself not without a fair bit of tension, because the astute reader reading this for the first time, having read through what precedes it, would see that in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, the Israelites were told that when when the Lord your God brings you into the land and clears away the nations, he names the Canaanites then, he specifically names the Canaanites, he says, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And now we have a covenant being made and we have mercy being shown to them. So the readers left to wonder until chapter six whether this oath will be honored and even whether the Lord will be angered by this oath. But 
we do need to note a few things about the plan that they've hatched. I know some will read about the scarlet cord and then they'll just say that it points to Jesus' blood. I'm not sure that's how we're supposed to read that. But there is something else that we are supposed to see about the way that this event happens and about the way that the author tells the story. Follow along with me. Rahab hides the spies despite the directive from the king. And that reminds us of the midwives in Egypt who feared God and did not do what the king commanded, but he let the the male children live. Rahab is to put the scarlet cord on the window as a sign that this house should be passed over, and she's told that no one's to leave the house. And that reminds us of the Exodus in Exodus 12, 22, The Israelites are told, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Rahab also speaks specifically of the Exodus in verse 10. And we showed before that the promise of all, that the other nations would fear the Lord was itself a promise given in the Exodus. So listen, I don't think that we're supposed to read this and run directly to the cross. I think we're supposed to read this and we're supposed to see this something of Rahab's Passover. More on this in a moment. But the author specifically telling, the events are happening and the author specifically telling the story in a way to evoke the Passover themes. Joshua 2, 22 through 24, we'll see the remainder of the story. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The spies return safely to Joshua, and their report is, Truly the Lord has given the land into our hands. The inhabitants just melt away. That's a striking difference from the faithlessness of the ten in the first spy mission. These two come back convinced. And it's a good outcome, but it is really a surprising outcome when we consider Israel's history. And it's a surprising outcome for a story that starts out the way that chapter 2, verse 1 starts out. In the context of Joshua 1 and 2, we step back and we say, whew, they got the message. The Lord is going to do the work of giving them the land. They don't have to worry. This is what they they were dealing with before. They don't have to step back, look at their people, do the math. They don't have to do that. They don't have to look around at their own inadequacy because they are truly convinced that the Lord is going to do the work. What he has promised, he will provide for. Even 
even to the point of preparing Rahab, the surprising ally with surprising faith, so that she would be God's provision to save the spies from the king of Jericho. The story isn't finished until chapter 6. After chapter 2, Israel crosses through the Jordan River on dry ground. So they're moving through a body of water on dry ground. In chapter 5, they celebrate Passover. At the end of 5, Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. He's told to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy. All of these things point back to Israel's exodus from Egypt. Then we come to chapter 6, and uh, perhaps we're familiar with how the Lord gives the, the, the odd military tactics employed for the Lord to give the victory over Jericho. But he, the Lord does give the victory, commanding them to march around the city and blow their trumpets, and God gives the victory. He gets all the glory for it. And chapter 6, 22 brings us back to this story and back to this oath. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So now Rahab's Passover is complete. Jericho is devoted to destruction, but Rahab and her family are spared. And more than that, she's brought into the people of God. First, it says that she lived outside the camp. That's so that she can go through a time of being made from, from being unclean, so she can go through that ritual time. But then, the way that it's written, then she's folded into Israel, and it says that she's lived in Israel even to this day. Rahab's faith has made her no longer a Canaanite devoted to destruction. Now, she has been saved from the destruction and brought into the nation. So it seems to be that it seems to be that the oath is okay because Rahab has effectively denounced her citizenship as a Canaanite and placed her faith in God and now become a true Israelite. Especially when you take this together with what follows this really looks like the argument of Romans that the true Israelite was always the Israelite that had faith. So when you take it together with what follows, with Rahab, we see the outsider who has faith brought into the people of God. With Achan, 
We see the insider who has no faith, who's put out of the people of God. And so really, it's all about faith. And Rahab here receives a new citizenship, and she is passed over because of her faith. Let me give you three takeaways that we see in this passage. Number one, trust his promises. Trust God's promises. God is always faithful to his promises. When they seem too good to be true, trust his promises. When you don't see any possible way that he could get you out of that or that he could make good on his promises, trust in his promises. As we come to Joshua chapter 2, his people have been renewed by the discipline of the wilderness, and he's showing them that even despite all of their faithlessness, despite all of their wandering, despite the fact that they grumble at his good promises, he is still going to be, make good on his promise to give them the land. That's an amazing grace. And he still remains true to all of his promises today. So I don't know what promise of God that you are tempted to doubt today. But he's going to make good on his word. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the promise we can cling to. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise to cling to. You can trust that promise. When you think that the Lord's condemning you for your sin, you can remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust his promises. Number two, trust his provision. trust his promise, we must trust his provision. He provides for all that he promises. To be sovereign over the ends and make good on his promise, he's also sovereign over the means to bring that about. So he's sovereign over the destination, but he's also sovereign over the journey that it takes to get there, and he will provide for the journey. Here he's giving the land to his people, and in his providence, he's provided an ally. That's so crazy, okay, that they just go into Jericho, and they're like, oh, we got, we got one of our people on the inside. He's provided an escape, and for Rahab, he's provided a lifeline. Again, I don't know where you need to hear this this morning. But God will provide for all that he has promised. 
He will provide for you for all that he has promised. Maybe you feel like you can't go on. He will give you the strength. Maybe you feel like you're trapped in sin. He always provides a way out. That's what his word tells us, that there's always a way out. Maybe you're looking at a season of suffering before you. Know this, that even if you're not shielded from the pain, he goes before you, knowing what lies ahead. He goes beside you, comforting you, and he goes within you, empowering you to get through that. Trust in his provision. Last, we look at this passage, and most of all, we just marvel at his grace. He's faithful even when his people are faithless. I don't know about you, that gives me great encouragement. Though the former generation was faithless, he remains faithful. His plan is not thwarted. He plods on graciously disciplining his people and graciously fulfilling the promise made to them. He preserves the nation. He provides, he's providing the land. He remains in special relationship with his people, and through them all nations will be blessed. Going further, we see no one is ever too far gone to turn to him in faith and receive his grace. Rahab should have been devoted to destruction. She should have been devoted to destruction, but was saved by her faith and brought into the people of God. She's passed over. And more than that, more than that, hear the marvelous grace, more than that, as if that's not enough. More than that, she's used by God in his work of redemption. He doesn't just like redeem her to square one. Rather, he overflows her cup with blessings, including her in the line of the Messiah. Including her faith as an example in Hebrews and James. It's amazing. Again, I already said it, but James, you want to see what faith looks like? Look at Abraham and look at Rahab. That day, God's people celebrated the Passover while looking forward, while looking forward to a greater exodus to come. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this language of exodus from Egypt used over and over and over again. It's used later at the time of the exile God's people again are being disciplined, but God promises to again rescue his people. Even during the darkness of the exile that would come later, God would promise deliverance while pointing forward to a future exodus. Isaiah chapter 8, 22. I think this is a familiar passage. 8, 22 says this. 
and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's where they're at. They're in darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now Isaiah chapter 9. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And this is this promise to save people from darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he's talking to them in exile. He says, it's dark now, it's gloomy now, but there's going to be one that comes who's going to save you from that, who's going to, on, on the darkness, the light has shone. So there's going to be another exodus. Then in the book of Matthew, we see that when Jesus comes, Matthew presents him as achieving this greater exodus. Think about it. Herod tries to kill Jesus. Jesus is spared when Joseph takes his family to Egypt. Jesus returns from Egypt. And on beginning his ministry, Jesus goes through the temptation of the wilderness and he endures it victoriously, accomplishing the righteousness for his people that they never could. And then if we skip ahead to Matthew 26, if you just still need to be convinced that the Passover was always about pointing to Jesus, look at Matthew 26. Here you go. Do you remember why we don't celebrate Passover today? Do you remember that? We as Christians don't celebrate Passover today because of Matthew 26. It's because at the last Passover, Jesus holds up the bread and he says, in effect, no longer are we going to use this bread to remember the Passover. From now on, Jesus says, his people will take the bread and they're going to remember his body broken. Jesus holds up the cup at the last Passover and says, in effect, no longer will this be the cup of blessing to look back to the Passover From now on, Jesus says, the cup of blessing will remember my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, Jesus says, no more will God's people look back to remember the exodus. The exodus points to Jesus. From now on, God's people will take the bread, take the cup, and they will remember the greater salvation when God in the flesh was the lamb 
sacrificed. God in the flesh was the lamb sacrificed on the cross for once and for all. And by his sacrifice, he will rescue for himself a holy nation, a people for his own possession that enjoys the special relationship of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and blesses all nations by taking the gospel to every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. Until that day, when his people inherit the new promised land, a new heaven, a new earth, with a new Jerusalem, and with God again dwelling with his people. Because Jesus' death on the cross is the greater Passover, setting at, at, at course the greater Exodus, then today we no longer look back celebrating the Passover, which was only a foreshadowing of the cross. Today we look back and we celebrate his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And we do that trusting his promises, trusting his provision, and marveling, marveling, marveling at his grace. If you're here today and not a believer, hear me. You can go from here and say, I don't believe it. That's an option on the table for you. It's not a good option, but it is an option on the table for you. Don't you dare go from here and say you're too far gone. If God can save a Canaanite prostitute and list her in the lineage lineage of Jesus, list her in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, put her faith right next to Abraham's in the book of James, he can take whatever it is you have going on in your life and wash you clean by the blood of Jesus. Hear me also. If you're here today, if you're here today and you think, I kind of like that, but you would go from here having this grand, hearing this grand, wonderful news of the gospel. Like you would hear of his grace and you would walk out of here like indifferent, half-hearted, yada, yada, yada. I have to tell you, I think that your indifference to the cross of Christ is just as profane as rejecting it altogether. You must not look upon the Savior's cross and walk away unchanged. I would plead with you to take all of your life and lay it before King Jesus. There's no other response that makes sense. Jesus is who he says he is. And church, when you're tempted to look at your life and think that it doesn't measure up, look to the scriptures you remember that God accomplishes all that he promises by his marvelous grace. It was never about your performance. It was never about your performance. It was always about his. He was always going to do all of it and graciously give it to you. As you marvel at his grace, 
You look forward, church, to the day when it's fully realized, when our conquering king comes back to give us the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us an appropriate response to your grace. Lord, I pray that you would, that we would walk out of here having met with you, having heard of your great news, your great work. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here changed by that that we would walk out of here stirred up, that we would walk out of here having tasted and seen that you are good. So Lord, help us to apply your word. Help us to trust in your promises. Help us to trust in your provision. And Lord, help us to just sit back, worship, marvel at your grace. All of that in Jesus' name.